Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that we are here tonight to study truth, truth that comes from you, truth that you have breathed out to us. We are thankful that you have never misled us. We are thankful that you have never lied to us. We are, we are thankful that you have never made a promise to us that you will not keep. That, that is a remarkable record. And because of your character, you are a God who can be trusted. And all of us tonight, Lord, as we come in here tonight, we're coming in from work and we're coming in from being at home and having dinner and grabbing a quick bite and we're coming in from life. And there is all of this... uh, uncertainty in our lives. Different kinds, different types. But in the midst of all of that uncertainty and stuff that we do not control, you ask us to trust you. And you say in your word, Through your son, let not your heart be troubled. And then Jesus went on and said, believe in God, believe also in me. And we do. And then he said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But it is so, and it is true. And so the fact of the matter is, Lord, that this, uh, this place, this earth, this is not our final destination. We are on a journey. We are walking through life daily. And when our names appear in the obituary section, we do not cease to live. We have just moved on to our home. And we are thankful for the gospel. We are thankful, Father, that you sent your son. We we are thankful that he went to the cross as our substitute. It's it's amazing for us to ponder the fact that, that Jesus, who created the worlds, came and was born of a virgin. And lived a sinless life and went to the cross to die for our sin. And he paid for it in full. And then on the third day, he rose up out of the, out of the tomb. And he appeared to many witnesses, over 500 at one time. And then he was raised up into heavens and he's seated at your right hand. And we are reminded that Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's why our hearts should not be troubled. We so often look at the United States, but you're in the heavens. 
and you rule over all. And this is not our final home, and this is not our final destination. But you have a plan for the ages, and you have a plan for history. And you have revealed it to us in your Bible and in your word. And we would ask tonight that you would open our eyes so that we might see. If you don't open our eyes, Lord, we cannot see your truth. We ask that your spirit would work individually in each man's heart. We're coming from different places. For some of us, this is brand new. Others of us have walked with you for many, many years. But what we all have in common is that we all need to hear from you. We ask that you would instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. And once again, we're grateful that you have promised to do that in your word. So teach us, instruct us, encourage us. Some guys are broken, some guys are devastated. But you're near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. So give those guys what they need. Let them know that you know they're wounded and they're not running at 100% and you know that and you will carry them and give them what they need. We ask that this time tonight would not be wasted, but that it would be profitable. We ask you to do that for us. Help us to take what we hear and help us to apply it to life, the life that we're living right now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Since the fall, we've been doing a study on, I guess you could simply call the giants. And if you're here for the first time, I'll kind of bring you up, kind of bring you up to speed. Our, our premise has been, and if you've been in this study now for a while, this is, uh, this is old hat to you. you. You can probably repeat this. Now, oh, by the way, I'm going to try and do something. I'm going to try and stay up here. This, this, that was an adjustment for me. This, this is a new room for us. And, um, and when I got down, because of the layout, it was hard for some of you guys to see. So I'm going to try and stay up here, okay? I'm, I'm going to make every attempt to do that. I just want you to know my heart. I'm going to attempt to do that. But um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to promise. I'm going to attempt, all right? So just, just so you know. And if I get down here and you can't see, um, well, don't do anything. Just, just, just deal with it, okay? <laughs> um, try to live with the frustration. We've been doing the study on the giants, and our premise has been that if you have a desire to be used by God in your life, if you want your life to count, and you know there's a reason you're alive. There's a reason you exist, you know, some people think they just exist by chance or they exist by accident. Uh, the Bible says you exist by the will of God. He's the one who called you into existence. And he has a plan for your life. And, and in, in our hearts, we, we have a sense of that. We want to make something of our lives. But until we come to know Christ and he opens our eyes and, and regenerates us by the Holy Spirit and gives us spiritual life and implants it in our hearts... We, we, we will really never know 
our purpose and why we are alive. And, and you know intuitively that he has a purpose for your life. Our premise has been, if you're going to be used by God, you're going to have to fight the giants. And we have gone back to Numbers chapter 13, to the story that many of you know, where the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land. And before they went into the land, God told Moses there in Numbers 13, pick a man from each tribe. There were 12 tribes. And do the recon mission. So they pick 12 leaders, they do the recon mission, they're there 40 days, they come back and give the report. They gave an accurate report, they said it's a wonderful land, but there are giants in the land and there was a little race of giants. So, what do you do when there are giants in the land? Well, 10 of the 12 leaders said, we are not able to take these giants. They're too strong, they're too intimidating, Uh, they are too technologically advanced. But Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, we're able to fight them. God will take them. God will handle them. Uh, The reason we remember Joshua and Caleb is that Joshua and Caleb were willing to fight the giants. If you're going to be used by God, you have to be willing to fight the giants. And here's the thing. In the Christian life, the Christian life, the Bible says, uh, the Christian life, in the Christian life, we go from faith to faith. Which one way I take that is that we go from giant to giant. Every guy in here has some kind of giant in your life that you're facing. You wish that giant would go away. You wish that God would give you deliverance from that giant right now. But sometimes God doesn't give us immediate deliverance from the giants because you see it's when we deal with the giants that we learn to trust him. Because if God doesn't come through for us, we're finished. It can be a giant financial setback. It could be a giant career setback. It can be a giant health issue. It can be a giant relational issue. It it can be hundreds of things. It could be thousands of different things in your life. But in this area of your life, this giant forces you to trust God. This giant forces you to your knees to ask God for his help. That's what we've been doing. And we've been talking about the different giants that we face as we go through life. What I want to do tonight is is on that same vein, but I also want to take a step back. And the reason I want to take a little bit of a step back, I I, I want us to, uh, I want us, I I think it's appropriate that we evaluate some things tonight in our lives. And the reason I think that's appropriate is that we we have just come through, in a sense, a transition. It's still taking place. But... One president has left, another has stepped in. And because of that event, we are all very mindful of leadership. Now here's the deal. We've got a room full of leaders in here tonight. Oftentimes, I'll say to guys, I'll often say this when I do conferences. I'll say, we got a room full of leaders. And a lot of guys in the room don't believe that. Because some guys are aware that they're leaders. Some guys are are very, um, very much uh, tuned into the fact that they have leadership responsibilities. But it's always interesting to me, there are some guys that for whatever reason, perhaps how you were raised, do not view themselves as a leader. But let me say this to you. You're a leader. You're a significant leader. Somebody is watching you. 
Someone is watching your life. Someone is watching how you live. You may not even be aware that they are watching. But they're watching. It may be someone at work who knows you're a Christian and you've never talked to them about Christ. But they've picked up, they've put some pieces together that you are a Christian. And because they know that about you, they're watching you. And they're evaluating you. What, what, what is it that they are watching? Why, why are they watching? Well, I, I think the explanation is, if you say that you believe certain things and you say, well, I haven't even said that to them. Yeah, but they picked it up somehow. Maybe it's because of how you handle yourself in certain situations that's different from how other guys handle themselves. They're watching you. Why are they watching you? I think they're watching you to see if what you believe matches up with how you live. See, that's always the issue in leadership. Always. But be assured you're a leader. It doesn't matter where you are in life, if you're a man, you're a leader. You were born to be a leader. You were born to influence others. If you're a young man, you're a future leader. And no matter what your age, you should be taking leadership responsibilities now. You don't wait till you're 40 to become a leader. You don't wait till you're 30 to grow up. Um, and, and by the way, let, let, me, let me say something to you about young men. Uh, you got sons, you've got grandsons, encourage them in their leadership. Encourage them and give them room and, and give them situations where they've got to take some leadership and give them room to fail and give them room to screw up. A while back, how do I tell this story and cover it? I don't know that I can. There was a situation that I recently was in where a bunch of young people were going to um, have a bonfire at our place. And we had a bunch of parents at our place. And the idea, and, and my son Josh was going to come up and down by the creek, they got a bon, we got a bonfire, they're going to do a bonfire. And uh, so we had a bunch of young people there, and Josh called and he was hung up, and, he, and, and so he said, hey, have such and such, go down and start the fire. So I said to such and such, hey, Josh is running late, why don't you go down and start the fire? I said, great. And uh, this kid's 21 years old. Good kid, pretty responsible, pretty solid. And uh, he said, okay. He said, is, I said, there are logs right down there in the shed. They're right there. You'll see it all. I said, there's a can of gasoline down there. And his dad immediately said, and his mom, there's gasoline? And I said, yeah. And then they said, they said, oh, you can't start a fire with gasoline. And I thought, what, did you, what do you want him to do, get two sticks and rub them together? 
I mean, I was just watching it. And they were, I mean, they were just, well, you can't start a fire with gasoline. I thought, what the crud are you going to do? I mean, how else do you start a bonfire? Maybe you could help me here. I didn't say anything. I'm just watching this. And you know what it came down? They were very concerned about their 21-year-old son going down and pouring gasoline on some logs because they had known of a situation a few months ago where somebody started a bonfire and did something stupid and got burned. Okay, well, fine. Then, hey, guess what? Don't do something stupid when you start the bonfire. Be smart and think. But I was watching this, and, and, and I will tell you this. I'm just watching this, and this 21-year-old, when I said, hey, can you go down there? Josh can't be here. Would you start the bonfire? And he goes, oh, yeah. He got real excited about doing it. He goes, yeah, I'll do it. He said, oh, yeah. He said, the woods there, grass there. Okay. He was and I watched him deflate before the eyes and before the words of his um, well-meaning parents who, um, who, uh, who, in my opinion, took away his masculinity. The kid's 21 years old. We got kids in Iraq and Afghanistan taking on the Taliban. And when you're camped in Afghanistan, in the mountains, you don't need your mommy saying, as you're in the special forces, don't put gasoline on the fire. I'm, okay. Are you guys getting this? The kid's 21 years old. Now, is it possible that he will start the fire and it'll explode? Yes, it is. That's how you learn to make a good fire. <laughs> Leadership is screwing up and then learning from your screw-ups, is it not? Are you an old guy? You look like you are. Well, you got all kinds of experience. You got all kinds of stuff. You got all kinds of wisdom to share with younger guys. Why? Because you've screwed up. The screw-ups are what qualify us. Most of us have to learn the hard way, don't we? Most of us. My, my son John, we were in a social situation. He introduced me to a guy. This was over Christmas. Friend of his, guy about his age. And, uh, hey, how you doing? And I knew about this guy and, you know, his, the gal he had married and all this. And as we're talking, the guy made a comment uh, about following Christ. And he said, the Lord's really done a work in my life this year. But I've really screwed up. But I'm really trying to learn. He says, he said, I, I kind of had to learn it the hard way. And I said, I think that's true for all of us, don't you? We all learn the hard way. But we're leaders. We're leaders. Now, here's what I want to do tonight. Because we're all so mindful right now of, of a change in leadership. Um, 
I, I want us to talk tonight about what I would call the giant of half-hearted obedience. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, the scripture says, you shall love the Lord your God with 50% of your heart. <laughs> it's not quite what it says. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Um, when you're a leader, and I don't care what your leadership position is, you say, well, I'm not a well-known leader. Most leaders aren't well-known. You don't have to be well-known to be a leader. Most of the world's work gets done by guys that are not well-known. They just show up, they do their work, they work hard, they do it right the first time, they don't cut corners. Now, that's a man. That's what a man does. You don't have to be well-known to be a leader. But you take the assignment that you have been given, and you do it well, and you do it to the glory of God. And you may say, well, one day I'd really like to be used. Well, great. That's wonderful. But, but don't, get, don't get wrapped up in ambition. Serve God where you are right now. He knows, he knows where you are. Don't be worried about climbing the ladder. Let him promote you when he's ready. The Bible says he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Much. There are lessons to be learned in what the world would call small, insignificant places. Wherever you are, do your work and do it well. God is watching. That's where he trains his leaders, is in the small, insignificant place. You say, I'll always be there. You don't know how long you'll be there. That's not your call. It doesn't matter how long you'll be there. God knows, and your life is under the control of Almighty God. But the danger for us we're different guys, we have different gifts, we have different skills, we have different abilities. The danger to us continuously is that area of responsibility where we are and as we're going through life is that we get tempted to succumb to this giant of half-hearted obedience. In Joshua 1, so I'm backing up tonight. I want to go back to the transition that happened in Joshua chapter 1 when there was a change of leadership in Israel. Um, Moses had been their leader. How do you step in and replace Moses? You don't. But God always has his leaders. And when God, you know, God raises up leaders and God sets leaders down. Leaders serve for a period of time. Uh, it, it, it says in the scripture about David that when he had fulfilled the purposes of God for his generation, then he went to be with the Lord. So, so every leader has a time slot. You've got so many days. And a lot of times we look and say, oh, what happens? If, oh, this leader, what happens when he goes? Well, God's got somebody else. It's not based on the leader. It's based on God's plan. And God knows what he's doing. 
So we don't have to fret and we don't have to be anxious and we don't have to be worried. God's in charge. God's in control. God's got a plan. In Joshua chapter 1, you have a transition going on from Moses to Joshua. And let's read verse 1. Now, it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. And then he lays out the land and the borders. Um, Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Now, you know what? You can take that promise too. God will not fail you, and he will not forsake you. Where you are, he will not fail you. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you. He knows where you are. He knows the pressures of leadership. He knows the fears of leadership. He knows the uncertainties. He knows the giants. But he will be with you. He's your father. He knows that you need all these things. So you can never forget that you're not in this by yourself. You're living your life under the watch care and under the saving defense of your sovereign keeper who is your God. Can't ever forget that. We get anxious and worried and sick with worry when we forget who we are and who is in charge of our lives. This is a place of great security to know God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. It's the most secure place in all of the world. Is it not? Yes, it is. And there is great peace in knowing your position, in knowing your your family connection. Now watch what he says to Joshua in Joshua's leadership. And watch how God warns him about the giant of half-hearted obedience. Watch this, verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Now watch this, watch this. Be careful. Now, if you've got a 21-year-old that's going to go build a bonfire... You know what I think it's okay to do? Say, son, there's the logs, there's the gas. Hey, son, be careful. I think that's legit. You know? Hey, son, that motorcycle? Don't do wheelies on 635 going 190 miles an hour. Be careful. Be careful. It's good to be careful, is it not? Okay. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall... Meditate on it day and night. 
When you meditate, you think. You think. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be, when it says that, what is the world? When I was growing up in church, we had this idea that worldliness was, uh, well, in our church, you couldn't dance. Churches get weird. How many of you guys grew up in a legalistic church with a bunch of rules? Yeah. How is it you're still a Christian? <laughs> Churches get weird, don't they? I mean, in our church, basically, what I figured out was you couldn't have fun. That's pretty much the conduct. You don't dance, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do this, you don't do that. Okay, great. Anything I can do? Uh, you know, God's got a grace. God gave us life. He wants us to enjoy life. But he also gives us parameters. He gives us guardrails in life. You see? When the scripture says, don't be conformed to this world. When it's talking about the world, it's talking about the world system. That which is in contrast and opposition to God. We fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's that system that is anti-God, anti-truth, and we're surrounded by it. So it says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, of your mind. Of your mind. Well, how do you get renewed in your mind? Well, the only way you get renewed in your mind is to put the Word of God in your mind, and then as you go through your day, you've got it on the back burner. doesn't mean you walk around with a Bible at work all day long, but it means you have the principle of the Word of God in your head. And you count upon the Lord to bring the right principles to your mind by His Spirit when you need them. It's always back there on simmer in your life. It's always there. That's what it means to meditate. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful. There it is again to do according to all that is written in it. He doesn't want, hey, listen, I don't want you to be half-hearted. There's another word I'd really like to say, but I'm not going to say. Uh, no, I'm not going to say it. You know, some, some, some lady will read, listen to the CD later and get upset. Um, be, don't, I don't want you to be half-hearted. So I want you to be careful so that you may do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Once again, I'm with you. I'm with you. If you know God is with you as you go about your life and your leadership responsibilities, that's really all you need to know. He's with you. He's got all power. He's got all wisdom. He's got your backside. He's got your flanks. He's got you in the front. So that means you can be his man and live to his glory in your area of responsibility and leadership. Okay. I had to set that up. Give me a second here as I breathe deeply. That's weird with that mic like that. Now, I'm going to tell you tonight, I got too much stuff. I, I'm, I'm just telling you up front. Um, give me a second here. Uh, and, and as I'm looking for all my stuff, let me move this. Okay. You know, the last couple of days have been interesting for me. 
And I'll tell you why. Um, Monday night, yeah, Monday night, I went to bed real early. And um, then later, Mary came in to see if I was asleep, and I was, and she woke me up to see when, when she came to see if I was asleep. She didn't mean to, but she did. And I told her I was going to bed, but she came in, and, and she said, are you okay? And I said, I said, yeah. And see, the reason she's asking that is that I didn't seem okay. And she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay. I'm, she, she said, is there something wrong? I said, Mary, there really isn't. She said, well, you haven't been yourself. I said, yeah, I know. And I'm not quite sure what it is, but I'm okay. She said, okay. I said, I'm, I, I think I need to get some sleep. So that was Monday. And Monday, I was sort of withdrawn. I wasn't real engaging. I wasn't my normal, real happy self. But I was a little bit more quiet and, um, and irritated. I was a little irritated, just generally speaking. And then Tuesday... What is today, Wednesday? Tuesday, I was kind of withdrawn in pretty much the same way. And, um, and then last night, when I went to bed, and usually when I go to bed, I, I try to recall the mercies of God that day before I go to sleep, because it helps me to sleep. And, and then I... I I say, Lord, thank you for that mercy. And I try, to, I try to enumerate some specific mercies God gave me that day. And then I, I, I and this isn't like a ritual, but it's what I do most nights. And then I say, Lord, I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And I really need mercy tomorrow. Because I have studied and I know what I'm going to teach Wednesday night, but I don't think it's right. I don't think it's, I don't think it's what I'm supposed to teach. And I don't, have, I don't quite have it, and, and, and I'm kind of screwed up. That's kind of how I pray. The fact of the matter is, last night, I didn't want to be here tonight. Just being honest with you guys. So I got up this morning, I got my Bible... And I grabbed uh, Morning and Evening, which is C.H. Spurgeon's. Gosh, got that T.O. disease. Um, I mean, it was right in my hands. But I'll tell you what, that Larry Johnson... That, that guy's a receiver. You see that guy with the Cardinals? Isn't that his name, Larry Johnson? Fitzgerald. Who's Larry Johnson? Oh, yeah, he's, he's T.O.'s agent. No, that's not T.O.'s agent. Larry Fitzgerald. That, guy, that, guy, that guy's a ball player. All right. So I get up. I get my Bible. I get my coffee. I've been kind of screwed up the last couple of days. I just, just slightly, okay? So I decided to read Spurgeon. 
he has this devotional called Morning and Evening. But the night before, I forgot to read the evening thing. So I read the evening deal for Tuesday this morning. Here's what I read. And it was based on Luke 24, 45, uh, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the two guys. Remember? And they didn't realize it was the Lord. And then when he left, they realized it was him, the risen Lord. And it says, then he opened their understanding that they might um, understand the scriptures. Now, listen to this. And quite frankly, just at this moment, I'm not sure Luke 24, 45 is, is referring to that passage because I didn't look it up. So don't hold me to that. It's always good before. It is? See, I thought it was. Okay. But thank you for checking the word of God since I didn't. I appreciate that. Listen to this. This is what I read this morning. Remember, I'm kind of just bummed out the last couple. It's not, it's not hardcore. It's just subtle. I'm unsettled. Listen to this. Our Lord Jesus differs from all other teachers. They reach the ear, but he instructs the heart. They deal with the outward letter, but he imparts an inward taste for the truth by which we perceive its savor and spirit. The most unlearned of men become ripe scholars in the school of grace when the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, unfolds the mysteries of the kingdom to them and grants them the divine anointing by which they are enabled to behold the invisible. We've been very concerned of late about what's visible. Happy are we if we have had our... catch, Catch this. Catch this. Happy are we if we have had our understandings cleared and strengthened by the Master. And I want to tell you something. When I read those words, I snapped out of it. Just like that. I just snapped out of it. Now, what did I need to snap out of? I wasn't even sure. But what I began to realize immediately was that... um, and, and you got to understand, this is, this is bigger than who won or who didn't win or any of that stuff. It's much bigger than that. It's not about an individual. It's not about a person. It's just about where we are. And I'm a leader, and you're a leader. You've got a family. I've got a family. And we're cognizant of where we are and what is going on. And we're on turf where we've never been before. And it's treacherous. And we have many in responsibility who got us into treacherous turf that once again we are entrusting to navigate us through treacherous turf. And maybe that's why I'm a little unsettled. Maybe. Um. When we talk about Joshua, Joshua is uh, an interesting guy in the scriptures. Um, Joshua, to me, I, I'm looking for a quote from James Boyce, and I had it. I actually had it. Give me a second. I would have swore that I had that quote, and if I have it, I'm good. If I don't, I got it. All right. I thought I had that sucker. All right. I really wanted this quote. 
Okay. Listen, to James Boyce is with the Lord now, but he was pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Great scholar. This is from his commentary. Here's what he says. Joshua was a soldier. He was a brilliant soldier, one of the most extraordinary military commanders of all time. But he was not an exciting personality, as far as we can tell. He was probably just a bit of a plugger, a rather straightforward man who was chiefly concerned with carrying out his divine commission to the letter. He had no great sins and made very few mistakes. In short, he was not the kind of person who would make a good hero for a novel. Yet Joshua was eminently God's man. God told him at the very beginning of the conquest, be careful to obey all the law my, so- my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may be successful wherever you go. This is exactly what Joshua did, and he was successful. Listen to what Boyce says about Joshua. As I have studied Joshua, I've become convinced that this is a message very much needed in our time. We have many professing Christians in our day. As many as 50 million in the United States alone, by some estimates. But we do not seem to have many Joshuas. We do not have many who, without trying to be novel or spectacular, determine to obey the law of God in every particular and then actually do obey it through a lifetime of faithful service. Isn't it true that this is the chief reason for the church's weakness in our country at the present time? And isn't the chief reason for this failure our more basic failure to read, study, digest, and obey the word of God? Joshua was not a charismatic figure, as we can tell. I love what he says. He was a plotter. Most of us are plotters. You just show up, and you do what needs to be done, and then you take, the, we're just take, you take one step. What's the next step? What's the next step? Listen, you follow Christ. Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. This guy's just a plotter, but he's one of the great personalities of the Old Testament. Why? Because he put a premium on obeying God with his whole heart. Well, this isn't real exciting. This isn't real spectacular. Uh, Actually, it is. The people in your life that you trust the most are people like this. God loves his men to be predictable and to be stable and to be steady and to have their feet on the ground. That's what he wants to develop in your life, and that's what he wants to develop in my life. Man, I'm glad I found that quote. That really helped me. I don't know if it helped you, but I like that quote. James Davison Hunter has written a book with a black cover called The Death of Character. Just light bedtime reading. (laughs) But it's pretty darn good. Now, once again, we're in a transition of leadership. And, And we are all acutely aware of that. But let's not forget this. You're a leader and I'm a leader. There's a lot of evaluation about the former president, the new president, all this. Let's evaluate ourselves. That's what I want us to do here tonight. So in this um, very encouraging book called The Death of Character, the first chapter is called Postmortem, which just makes you want to read it, doesn't it? Here's how he starts. It's a good book. 
Hunter says, character is dead. Attempts to revive it will yield little because its time has passed. I'm going to read you about a page out of this guy, about a page and a half, okay? The irony is sharp. The death of character comes at a time when the call to renew values and to restore character is especially loud, persistent, and universal, not to mention urgent. There is much more to this than political posturing. The summons to restore character is felt ardently and as such has translated into a myriad of well-intended efforts to revive it. In America, the reservoirs of hope for renewal of public and private virtue are deep and full, and one cannot deny it. Character will be displayed from time to time in individual cases and within particular communities. Exemplary manifestations among ordinary people, more often than not hidden from public attention, even so, a restoration of character as a common feature within American society and a common trait of its people will not likely occur anytime soon. The social and cultural conditions that make character possible are no longer present. And no amount of political rhetoric, legal maneuvering, educational policymaking, or money can change that reality. It's time has passed. It's a pretty tough statement. Let's see if you can back it up. Character is formed in relation to convictions and is manifested in the capacity to abide by those convictions even in, especially in, the face of temptation. That's character. Let me read that again because that's significant. Character is formed in relation to convictions and is manifested in the capacity to abide by those convictions, even in, especially in, the face of temptation. Temptation tests character. Does it not? Yes, it does. This being so, the demise of character begins with the destruction of creeds, the convictions, and the God terms that made those creeds sacred to us and inviolable within us. So character comes from somewhere. Where does character come from? It's a conviction in the midst of temptation to abandon your convictions. But see, we live in a culture where many don't even have convictions. And the reason they don't have convictions is that they're not certain there is any absolute truth. There's a guy named George Barna. He's sort of the George Gallup of the Christian world. He's always taken polls among evangelical Christians. Uh, Gallup will tell you that um, well over a third of those who call themselves evangelical born-again Christians uh, don't believe orthodox doctrines in the Bible. I was reading an article this week about the demise of evangelism and Christianity in America. There's not a lot of impetus to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, why would that be? Well, because a lot of evangelicals don't really believe what Jesus said about hell. A lot of people in evangelical Bible-believing churches have a problem with what the Scripture says, what Jesus said about, they don't have a problem with heaven, but they got a problem with hell. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? And so as a result of that issue, which is a hard issue, they don't have a conviction 
that there indeed really is a hell, or if there is, that God would actually send someone there forever. So as a result, if God wouldn't send someone there forever, then why is there any energy in your life to tell someone the good news about embracing Christ as, as Savior, which can give you eternal life and keep you from spending eternity in a place like hell? Does that make sense? If there's no conviction that there's a hell, why the heck would you tell the good news? The good news is there's not a hell. Or the good news is it's not forever. You see how this ties in? Okay. This destruction occurs simultaneously. What destruction? The destruction of truth. Okay? You guys, you guys staying with me? Oh, yeah. Okay. This destruction occurs simultaneously with the rise of values. Values are truths that have been deprived of their commanding character. I, I don't have time to go into this. He doesn't say this. But you see, 100 years ago, people didn't talk, and, and writers didn't write about values. They wrote about virtue. We don't, we don't talk about virtue today. We talk about values. Values are truths that have been deprived of their commanding character. They are substitutes for revelation. The Bible is revelation. Imperatives that have dissolved into a range of possibilities. How did that guy pray the other day? How did, what, what did that guy say? That Episcopalian homosexual bishop, Robinson, who prayed at one of the inaugural ceremonies. What did he say? What did he call God? I saw it. Oh, God. The God who is the God of many understandings. That's a crock. I got another word for that too that I won't say. <laughs> the word, the very word value signifies, and watch this, the very word value signifies the reduction of truth to utility, to boo, to fashion, conviction to mere preference, all provisional, all exchangeable. Both values and lifestyle, a way of living that reflects the accumulation of one's values, bespeak a world in which nothing is sacred. Neither word carries the weight of conviction, the commitment to truths made sacred. Indeed, sacredness is conspicuous in its absence. There is nothing there that one need believe commanding and demanding its due, for truth is but a matter of taste and temperament. Formed against a symbolic order made up of values and differing lifestyles is the self, malleable, endlessly developing, consuming, realizing, actualizing, perfecting, but again, something less than character. Our culture focuses not on character, but on self. Last paragraph. We say we want a renewal of character in our day, but we don't really know what we ask for. To have a renewal of character is to have a renewal of a creedal order that constrains, limits, binds, obligates, and compels. Is that not true? Yes, it is. Uh, some of us laugh because of how we're raised. You can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this. And some of it was kind of stupid. But there are things in the Bible says, 
where God says, don't do that. Don't do that. And don't do that. He's got 10 basic ones. Do this, but don't do that. Why? Because we need constraints. We need restraint. All right. This price is too high for us to pay. We want character, but without unyielding conviction. We want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt or shame. We want virtue, but without particular moral justifications that invariably offend. We want good without having to name evil. We want decency without the authority to insist upon it. We want moral community without any limitations to personal freedom. In short, what we want, we cannot possibly have on the terms that we want it. That's why character is dead. But that doesn't apply to Christ and his church, does it? He wants us to be men of character. He wants us to be men of integrity. Um, flip with me to Psalm 15 very quickly. You know, I love the Word of God because, as Spurgeon said, what it does, it, it how did he phrase it? It clears and it strengthens. I, I love the Bible because it cuts through all the crap. Really. And isn't there a lot of that out there? It's everywhere. With all of its methane gas. It's everywhere. In Psalm 15... Here's what God expects out of his people. O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? He's talking about those who are in his family. Who lives in your tent? Your family or your condo or your house or your mobile home, whatever you live. Who lives in it? Your family. These are family issues. Lord, who's in your family? Who lives on your land? Who lives on your hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. Now, get the idea here. This doesn't mean we do this perfectly because the scripture teaches us that we all have sin and we still, even though Christ has come into our lives, we still have that sin nature within us. So we're fighting this all the time. So we're not going to do this perfectly, but catch this, we want to do it. If you know Christ, there's a want to. I want to be that kind of man. Dad gummit, I'm not there yet, but I want to be. Now, if that doesn't concern you, you better check yourself out if you know Christ. If there's no want to, you got to be concerned about yourself. You say, yeah, but I go to church every Sunday. Well, pin a rose in your nose. <laughs> yeah, I'm in this Bible. I go to two Bibles. I go to three Bible studies. Oh, good, good, great. Oh, you're in, man. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers so Lord who may abide in your tent who's in your family who may dwell on your hill who lives on your real estate he who walks with integrity works righteousness speaks truth in his heart God loves truth he loves it the people you respect the most in your life are truth tellers are they not 
You can count on him. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. We don't even use the word reprobate anymore. A reprobate is someone who's anti-God, anti-truth, anti-Bible, anti-covenant of God. They're just flat out against God. That's a reprobate. If you're a man of God, you despise reprobate. <gasps> that doesn't sound loving. Well, that's what it says. Do they need the Lord? Yes. Let me, let me say this. You don't admire them. You don't look up to them. You pity them. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So a man of God, what do you do? You honor those who fear God. Those are the ones that have your respect and your admiration. He swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. You give your word and the situation change and it's going to cost you money, you still do it. Because your word's your bond. That's integrity because you've got a conviction that's sacred. He doesn't put out his money at interest. You've got to understand Deuteronomy 23 to understand that because Jews couldn't loan money to other Jews with interest. That was the word of God to them. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. That's what God wants to develop in your life and my life. He wants character. He wants substance. That's all based on conviction. Now, the danger is, here's the danger. All the way through life, I don't care how long you've known the Lord. In fact, the longer you've known the Lord, I think the more at risk you are. Because the longer you've walked with God, I think we get... Um, we get a sense of security and safety. And I think we make ourselves vulnerable to this giant of half-hearted obedience. I was reading an article recently. I'm going to pick on a couple of guys. Okay? But there's a reason I'm going to pick on them. But I'm just going to go ahead and pick on them. I'm going to pick on Jesse Jackson. Now, there's a reason I'm going to, I'm going to bring him up. So stay with me here, okay? Because I'm going somewhere. Now, there, I, could, I could, I mean, there's so many illustrations, but I happened to read this article, and, and it explains, uh, it, it explains to me the danger that can happen to any of us. Uh, this, this article is called Jesse Jackson on Abortion. It's written by Ralph Reagan. Um, Reagan tells a story about working at the National Right to Life headquarters. And he was um, given responsibility of being editor of their magazine. And he went to work and, you know, got out the first couple issues. And then he had to go back and look through the previous files. And when he went through the previous files, he became editor in 81. He found in, in the January 1977 file... And an article that had been submitted to National Right to Life News written by Jesse Jackson. Because you see, Jesse Jackson used to be pro-life. A lot of you don't know that. He's very much for abortion now. Did you know that Ted Kennedy used to be pro-life? You know, on the internet, you can see statements that Ted Kennedy made talking about we're standing up for the innocents. We're standing up for the unborn. Al Gore used to hold pro-life positions. But they don't anymore. So this guy's going back and he sees this uh, article written by Jesse Jackson. 
that Jackson has submitted for national right to life. And he says in this article, this all came rushing back to me when I recently read Matt, Nat Hintoff's column in the Washington Times. The title says it all, The Devaluing of Human Life, Why Did Jesse Jackson Change His Stance on Abortion? And then he says, you know, most people don't remember that this used to be Jackson's position. And then he quotes a passage from Jesse Jackson's article that was submitted back in 1977. Here's what Jackson wrote. I was born out of wedlock, and against the advice that my mother received from her doctor, she did not have an abortion. And therefore, abortion is a very personal issue for me. So here's um, Jesse Jackson. His mother was a young single woman who got pregnant. She goes in, the doctor says, you need to have an abortion. But because of a conviction in her heart that was sacred, she refused to have the abortion. Therefore, Je Jesse Jackson lives. Interesting, isn't it? Our youngest son, Josh, because of complications that Mary had during the pregnancy when she was at Stanford Medical Center, and I was in the hospital with um, uh, meningitis, it was just her and the doctor, they said, you have got to have an abortion. You must have an abortion because of this medication. You didn't know you were pregnant. Uh, they didn't say abortion. They said, you need to interrupt the pregnancy. And Mary said, that's not an option. Well, this child could be born horribly handicapped. Well, that's not, you have a healthy boy, you have a healthy girl. Why would you take a risk? Well, that's not our choice. He said, lady, you could have a little monster. Great bedside manner. Jesse Jackson basically in this article says, this, is a, this, this abortion thing is a big deal to me because my mother was advised to get an abortion, but she didn't. From my perspective, human life is the highest good, the summum bonum. Human life itself is the highest human good, and God is the supreme good because he is the giver of life. That is my philosophy. Everything I do proceeds from that religious and philosophical premise. Life is the highest good, and therefore you fight for life, using means consistent with that end. Life is the highest human good, not on its own naturalistic merits, but because life is supernatural, a gift from God. Therefore, life is the highest human good because life is sacred. Going back to Hunter. We've lost the, the sense of conviction and the, and the sense of sacred. Jackson uses the term. He goes on and he says, Jackson also that year wrote an open letter to Congress. I must oppose the use of federal funds for the policy of killing infants. Speaking at the 1977 March for Life, Jackson asked, what happens to the moral fabric of a nation that accepts the aborting of the life of a baby without a pang of conscience? Uh, so Monday we had Martin Luther King Day, and then yesterday um, Barack Obama's inauguration. And there were a lot of references back to uh, Dr. King's speech at the Lincoln Memorial. And one of the things that we remember about that speech is that Dr. King said words to this effect, that he had a dream that one day that men would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the, the content of their character. Now, I want to submit to you, I think a lot of evangelical Christians, forget the world, I submit to you that a lot of evangelical Christians have thrown that away.
I, I, can, I can understand if, if my family is brought here in, in slave ships, I understand, well, actually, I don't, but I can get a little grip of understanding of how significant it is. As I heard one man say that 50 years ago, I couldn't drink out of that drinking fountain in this town, and here we are. That's pretty significant. But here's, here's what I don't get. And, and, and let's, let's be real honest here. God is a God of justice. And for a long time, and for a lot of families and for a lot of people, there were some terrible things going on, horrific things. One of them was that black men were often accused of, often accused of crimes. In many cases, that they didn't commit. And in the middle of the night, they were taken and lynched. In many cases, they were not guilty of the crime. If they were guilty of the crime, they were denied due process. Now, that's wrong. Because this is a nation of laws. All right, now stay with me here. There is no doubt that that was a horrific and horrible miscarriage of justice. And is there resentment over that? And is there bitterness over that in many cases? And yes, absolutely there is. A horrible, a, 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 a horrible thing to do. But somebody got, somebody's got to help me here. What I don't get is why there is so much indignation over the lynching of adult black males and no concern over the lynching of unborn black children or unborn white kids or unborn Asian kids. I don't get that. Why is there so much vitriol over adults being murdered and children not being murdered? I don't get this. It's a disconnect to me. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you, I knew you. Psalm 139 says, David says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in thy book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. What I don't get, and, and see, this is where I have a problem. And it's not a black issue. It's not a white issue. It's not a political issue. It's a biblical issue issue, isn't it? Amen. This guy, Nant Hintoff, uh, once again, I want to go back to the phrase, that we don't judge men by the color of the skin, by the content of the character, all right? When I look at a leader, I look at the content of his character. And when a leader, I don't care who he is, I don't care if he's Republican or Democrat or white or black. I don't care what he is. When, when a leader has no problem with the slaughter of babies and in fact says one of my first acts will be to put back into law the unfettered Support for the destruction of babies. I say we look at the content of the character. 
and I don't care what the guy says, and I don't care how great his personality is, You get what I'm saying. So this Nat Hintoff, who recently wrote an article about Jesse Jackson in the Washington Times, Hintoff, as a young white guy who was a liberal, read Jesse Jackson's articles on the pro-life position, and Jesse Jackson, by his logic and rationality, brought him to the position that life was sacred because life came from God. Now, Hintoff is a Washington journalist, and he tells the story that the last time he saw Jesse Jackson was on a train, and he says this. On that train, he spoke to Mr. Jackson, told him how much he appreciated his work and his writings and how it impacted him, and he said this. I also told Mr. Jackson that I'd been quoting in articles and in talks with various groups from his compelling pro-life statements. I asked him if he had any second thoughts on his reversal of those views. Usually quick to respond to any challenge that he is not consistent in his positions, Mr. Jackson paused and seemed somewhat disquieted at my question. Then he said to me, I'll have to get back to you on that. I still patiently await what he has to say. Oh, by the way, when Jackson changed his position in 88 when he ran for president, uh, the media praised him for his openness and tolerance. Now, he's a public figure, and we can take shots at him. How about me? And how about you? What are your convictions? Or have you lost them? Um, this woman by the name of Irina Sindler. There's a picture of her. She recently died at the age of 98 years old. There recently was a death of a 98-year-old lady named Irina Sindler. During World War II, Irina got permission to work in the Warsaw Ghetto as a plumbing sewer specialist. She had an ulterior motive. She knew what the Nazis' plans were for the Jews, her being German. Irina smuggled infants out in the bottom of the, you know, the Warsaw Ghetto. They closed it off, the Jewish sector of Warsaw, Poland. And the Jews couldn't come or go. Okay. But she worked in the sewers. Irina smuggled infants out in the bottom of the toolbox. She carried, and she carried in the back of her truck a burlap sack for the larger kids. She also had a dog in the back that she trained to bark when the Nazi soldiers let her in and out of the ghetto. The soldiers, of course, wanted nothing to do with the dog, and the barking covered the infant's noises. During her time of doing this, she managed to smuggle out and save 2,500 children. She was caught, and the Nazis broke both her legs and arms and beat her severely. Irina kept a record of the names of all the kids she smuggled out and kept them in a glass jar buried under a tree in her backyard. After the war, she tried to locate any parents that may have survived so that she could reunite the family. Most of the parents had been gassed. Those kids she helped 
got placed in the foster family homes or adopted. The year that Irina was up for the Nobel Peace Prize, she was not selected. Al Gore won for his writings on global warming. We would expect that of the world. But God expects something different from us. He expects us to be leaders. He expects us to be his leaders. And you say, well, you know, Steve, I'm not a real strong personality, or I'm not real, I'm not real gifted with words. Hey, can I tell you something about guys who are good speakers? Watch them closely. Good speakers are a dime a dozen. If somebody's a good speaker, it's because they were given a gift. That's why they're a good speaker. And some of them have worked at it, but many of them haven't. Let me say this to you. Be careful of gifted speakers in the body of Christ. I'm serious. And watch them carefully. Because, you see, the danger of being a gifted speaker is that you can still tell the truth and succumb to the giant of half-hearted obedience. You can still say the right things with the right emphasis and perhaps with even getting choked up. God loves obedience. Do we all get it right? No, we don't. But you know what God's looking for? He's looking for the want to. I want to. I want to be a man like that. That's what I want to be. Joshua, I agree with James Boyce, was a plotter. Wasn't well known. But he had character. He had conviction. That's why he stood against the giants. That's why Caleb stood against the giants. They had convictions that were sacred and they would not be swept by the panic and the desire for popularity among the masses. Are we in a leadership transition? Yeah, we are. But let me tell you something. God's in charge of every leadership transition. Do you know that? God's in charge of it. God raises up rulers. God puts them down. God's got a plan. God's working his plan. Everything's on schedule. God knows what he's doing. And here's the danger for us. The danger for us is we look at the world, we look at all this, and go, oh, this guy and this guy. What about me? The most critical issue in my life is not who is in the White House. The most critical issue in my life is who's in the blue house. I live in the blue house. See, the question is, am I holding to convictions? Am I holding to the word of God? When was the last time I took a stand that cost me? And I'm going to tell you something. You take a stand... And in this day and age, you're going to have Christians against you. 
You expect the world to get against you, but I'm telling you, you're going to have those in the church that don't like it. So that's where we are. At the end of his life, Joshua said these words. And they're great words for every leader to write on your own heart. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. We will obey his word. When we fall short, we're quick to confess with broken hearts and to make things right. And to trust in his mercy and forgiveness and loving kindness. But dear God in heaven, as I'm in the world, help me to not be of the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's love him and let's love the kingdom and let's live accordingly. So Father, we bow before you. We are grateful for who you are. We thank you that your sovereignty rules all, over all, that your control over rules over all. So our, our, we have no hope apart from you. But because we know you, we have, we have all the hope in the world. That's why we are to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. To let a request be made known to you and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, as we go to your word that that whatever it is that ails us is cleared and strengthened by truth. Thank you for a sure word. Thank you for the clarity of the word. Now encourage us to be your men. Encourage us to live a different kind of life. Encourage us to come out from among them and be separate. In what we think and in what we do so that your name might be honored in our lives. May we not confuse our children and grandchildren by how we live, by saying something and then doing the opposite. Discipline us severely, if that's where we are, and save us from ourselves. That would be profitable for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.